Today's episode is brought to you by Pond5. Pond5, that's a small body of water, and the number five, is an online marketplace for stock video, images, audio, and more, which can be instantly downloaded for legal use by filmmakers, podcasters, musicians, designers, YouTubers, and other media makers. Stock media opens up an entirely new world of creative options and allows you to produce content better, cheaper, and faster. And did you know you can sell your media on Pond5? Tens of thousands of artists around the world sell on the site, and they're making a living by doing what they love, making media. So what place better to sell to and to buy from than Pond5? And through January 1st, you can use the promo code WRITERS for 15% off all your purchases. That's Pond5, small body water, number 5, with the promo code WRITERS with a capital W for 15% off all your purchases. Thanks to Pond5 for sponsoring this podcast. Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel series. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for... Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. Uh, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For more information, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Hi, this is Ben Blacker, creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel and the Nerdist Comics Panel. Hey, speaking of comics, did you know that my writing partner, Ben Acker, and I have some Thrilling Adventure Hour comics that you can buy right now? They are digital-only exclusives, Issue Zero origin stories of Sparks Nevada, Marshall on Mars, and Beyond Belief. Uh, These are spinoffs of the very popular Nerdist podcast, The Thrilling Adventure Hour, Uh, They're done by the same art teams that will be doing the image comics that are coming in February, but I wanted to give you a a little sneak preview and and provide a jumping-on point for anyone, whether you're familiar with the Thrilling Adventure Hour or not. These are 10-page comics. You can get them at thrillingadventurehour.com. Click on Shop and click on Comic Books and uh, pick up these really cool Thrilling Adventure Hour comics. Sparks Nevada is illustrated by Jay Bone, who is terrific, and uh, Beyond Belief is illustrated by Phil Hester, who is brilliant. So check out the two digital-only comics. We don't even know if these will be collected anytime, uh, and they're a great jumping-on point for people who are both familiar and unfamiliar with the Thrilling Adventure Hour. They're just good stories. Uh, listen, not to brag, but Comic Book Resources gave each of them five stars. That's ten stars total. Uh, thrillingadventurehour.com, click on Shop, click on Comic Books, and pick those up. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you listening. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Uh, my name's Ben Queen. I'm a writer. I just created and was the showrunner on A to Z, which was on NBC. That's me. <laughs> oh, do you only speak in rhyme? <laughs> no, that's uh, that's been my experience. I, I, I agree with you about the 22 episodes, though. It's just like, all I want to do is read a book. I think, like, after having done that, I think, like, being on a network show is insane. Like, the pace of it is crazy. Yeah. And, like, like after the first three weeks of doing the show, I was like, I got sick. Mm-hmm. 
and I couldn't get better because I couldn't go home to get better. And it's just like a relentless pace that just never stops. And I mean, I don't know that I'll do it again, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I feel like what makes sense is 13 episodes mm -hmm. or 10 episodes. And then you get to take a creative break, you know, take a break to read a book or be with your family. That or repair sense. your fucking car. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a hubcap missing for like six months, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I've had one missing for four years. <laughs> There's never enough time for that. That's the last thing on the list. Yeah. Uh, please introduce yourself. Dear. Oh, I'm Dear Jermangan. Wait, what was the list? Uh, Dear Dramangan, I'm a staff writer on iZombie. I did another staff writing gig before this on Do No Harm. Um, one was at NBC, this is at CW. And iZombie's on when? Next year? Yeah, sometime. We haven't gotten an air date yet, but sometime okay. next year. It's mid-season. We'll talk about that. Kim Shumway, I'm a staff writer on The 100. I was writer assistant last year, got a freelance, so... Got promoted. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. That was how it went down. That's great. Yeah, I have a classic, nice. like, classic. Yeah. We never get that. Like, really? as much as that's oh. the classic story, yeah. it's the rarest story. From writer's wow. assistant. Yeah, to actually, you know. That was kind of my, I was kind of like a hanger on for yeah. a writer, and then, you know, he was like, oh, I guess. What is, know. wait, what does that mean? <laughs> I was just with David Schulner for years. I was his mm -hmm. assistant, and he'd either get mm -hmm. me gigs on his shows as a writer's assistant, or um, when he was uh, he had an overall deal at NBC for a couple years in a row, and I was his assistant there in basically his little writer's room. Um, and then when he finally got a gig, he was like, hey, come be a staff writer. Oh, all right. And I was all right, so I kept yeah. working. It's kind of exactly what happened with me as well. I was an EP assist, writer's assist, mm -hmm. staff writer. No you just got to cling on to these Basically, people. you have to find a mentor. Get Someone your hooks in. Yeah. Well, no, make them think they need you. Let's talk about that. <laughs> your story is different from this, I, uh, I'm i sure. A little bit. Um, but we'll talk about that in a second. You know, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. Um, so how did you guys first meet these... EPs who you became the assistants to or you befriended? Uh, I worked at William Morris as an assistant. Okay. And then I left William Morris because that's not a fun job. And Although I love my agent, I have to say. Um, but so one of the other agents there represented Jason and knew he was looking for an assistant and knew I was looking for a job. Mm -hmm. Set us up. Would you have stuck with him? I mean, you, you stuck with him for quite some time. Yes. Did you stick with him? Would you have stuck with him if it didn't click? No. No, 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 no. We, I mean, literally, we had the best interview I've ever had in my life. It was an hour and a half talking about Contact and The West Wing. Um, That's amazing. It was amazing, because we have the same taste in kind of movies, and he's a big action feature writer, sci-fi guy, mm -hmm. and I love sci-fi, so uh, we ended up just hitting it off completely, and from then it was done. Yeah, there was no question. That's wild. Yeah. Uh, and was there, he, he knew your intentions mm -hmm. to write professionally yes. going in. Yes, yes. Um, there's occasionally a sort of... It's a weird position, right? Because you want to be there to do the job that you're hired for, yes. but your boss also knows that you don't want to be there forever. Yes. So yes. how do you guys that you handle end up that? Like a graduate degree or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> and you're well, like screwing in light bulbs in their house, and you're like, yes. motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So how do you guys walk that line? Something I've tried to do is, you know, there's a certain amount of being an assistant, but also knowing that you're going to have to make that transition to being their peer or somebody who works with them. And so I, I just, I'm a big believer in that you walk into a room and you control like 80% of how somebody perceives you. And you shouldn't come in as the, the assistant who's like, yes, master, and like has their head bowed. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you got to be smart and, but know when to speak, like know your room and 
Um, so if you're like a writer's assistant, don't talk out of turn, but know when there's room sometimes to pitch something and make sure you're watching everything. And um, sometimes you'll turn to an assistant and you're like, what did you think of 107? And they're like, what? <laughs> or <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. Um, so it's, it's just about, um, I don't know, yeah, uh, being the best assistant, even though you know you have qualifications that go beyond that, but also, I mean, they just the smart people and the people who are going to want to mentor you, like, notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to ask to read your stuff, or they ask you to read their stuff and give them notes, and those opportunities are all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a funny social thing of, of being cool, like somebody they could go out and have drinks with, um, but also knowing your role and your place. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's tough. And did you, did either of you guys have to broach the... Well, here's my script now. I'm ready to. I'm ready to do this. I know you have an opening because I'm inside the machine. You know, I didn't because he asked to read my script first, mm-hmm. so it wasn't kind That's of what correct. that awkward situation where it's like, please, please. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, he's always been very supportive, so I, I, there was no awkwardness about it. I, I, I've heard from friends that that is the case often with their bosses. They, you sure. know, they don't. Ask. If that's the case, that's like a bad relationship where you're like, if they haven't asked, you need to break up with them. Mm-hmm. You need to <laughs> jump to another place, and it sounds scary, but start looking because it, you know that's never. It's never going to happen if you have to force it. Yeah. Did you have to do that? Did you have to? jump ship at some point and go to In my personal life. (laughs) No, not... Actually, Shulner I was with because... Um, God, we were on Trauma, you know, years mm-hmm. ago. It was a paramedic show on NBC. And that was before the networks were really getting the idea that ratings in the one, you know, like a 1.2 was like a trend. Um, so, I got, I don't know what our numbers were when we finally got canceled, but they didn't realize that those were going to be good numbers the following season. So mm-hmm. this weird thing happened where we didn't get our back nine, but then they'd order, like, three more episodes. Hmm. And then we're like, okay, now we're really going to be canceled. And writers are jumping ship left and right. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, actually, can we have a couple more episodes? And, and it was this really odd thing. So suddenly we're down to this bare-bones staff of, like, David Schulner and then, like, a producer and, like, the writer's assistant. So things started getting farmed out. He was like, God, please, if the janitor walked in, he would have been like, do you want to write a sequence? Um so he gave me and a bunch of other assistants uh, some scenes, and I wrote a scene, and he loved it. I mean, going to grad school actually helped with that a lot when I was given that opening. Uh, he was like, whoa, this is kind of professional. Um, so after that, he kept me really close, and I wrote like a storyline later and helped them out when they needed it, and then he brought me from place to place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't... Really, in fact, David didn't know me until he. I was somebody else's assistant. He didn't know me until he gave me those pages. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. really funny. Um, so yeah, and then after that, when he finally got, you know, I just had samples, and mm-hmm. he was always on me, of course, mm-hmm. too. Because when you're an assistant, you're tired. And then after, yes. I don't know you, but after USC, I was like, I never want to write again. But I do kind of want to do it as a career. But God, <laughs> if I have to, ugh. you're so burnt out. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Yeah, you have to make it happen somehow, and and you know that's how I slid in. All right, well let's we'll get back to that. But Ben, you were you were nodding your head as they were describing their experience in the writers' room, and you know finding the moments to speak up and all that. What what was your experience coming up? Oh well, you know I never really I only staffed one time, and that mm-hmm. was really just as uh, just to have that experience. I'd been I'd written a pilot with Paul Atanasio. And then he had produced a show called Century City, 
which was about lawyers in the future. I watched that show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, was, I did. It was pretty cool. I thought it was a cool concept, and um, it was a neat experience, but it did make me realize, like, I'm not, I don't feel like it's me to go into a room and, like, to have to go to an office all day on someone else's show. Like, I was just chomping at the bit a little bit on that. So that was the only time I staffed, and I was very lucky that I didn't have to, um, just from my end. Um, but it's really hard to to make to work your way up without doing that. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, here's the thing. I, I wrote features for, like, 10 years when yeah. I was in my 20s. They never got made. And at a certain point, my agent at ICM at the time was like, do you want to try television? And at the time... Were they selling? I was, yeah, I was getting uh, feature jobs. I was getting yeah. rewrites and assignments and things like that. But there was so much development money and features at the time mm-hmm. that you could make a living doing that. You can't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, and, and also, but also that leap was a much bigger one a few years ago. It was, and then, but, but there was a certain period where, like, all of a sudden, they were like, "Do you want to write a TV pilot?" And I got lucky because I got to got have a sort of a workaround. I mean, I didn't have the skills or the ability, the talent, or any of that um, <laughs> to be a TV writer. I basically didn't have any business doing it, but they were like looking at me as like a show creator, and so I got to do that, which is how I got my first few things set up, which is how I got Drive really? on the air when I did. Um, and was it? Let, let's talk about that for a second. Um, was it was that something you pitched? I mean, Drive was on at a time when you could actually go and just pitch a show. Yeah, uh, and and someone might buy it. So was it something you pitched? Was it something you wrote? And like, what was your knowledge of TV going into that? I had written a pilot with Paul mm-hmm. called Epic, which was for Fox, and I'd written another one which didn't get made. And I was like, after two years of it, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I want to write something that's definitely going to get on the air. Mm-hmm. And so I came up with that idea and. They brought Tim on board to mm-hmm. basically run the show and for me to learn from. And it was it was like trial by fire. I mean, we shot two different pilots of that with two different casts. Oh, wow. Um, we spent Wait, millions of dollars. how does that happen? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Do they still do things like that? I don't know if they do, but it was like... Not, not quite like Rob that. Thomas made Cupid twice. I don't That's know true. how that happened. Like 10 years yeah, apart. Yeah. I mean, it didn't start... The original version didn't start Nathan Fillion. Emma Stone was in it from the beginning, but we had a totally different cast. Mm-hmm. And we reshot cool. it. And then we spent so much money on it and it was one of these things where it was like then they just dumped it on a Sunday night after spending so much right. money on it that I was like this is ridiculous so that's when I just backed out of television and I went hmm. to Pixar for like five and a half years and alright yeah. that was his backup plan <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like, I was like, like over to Pixar no I got very lucky I got I, I had written a feature script it was a spec that John Lasseter read mm-hmm. um, there and uh, he was looking to hire a writer for Cars 2. And I came up and met with him. And I was the only writer on that from beginning to end. I mean, I was wow. on that for three years. And then I wrote another movie for them, um, which has yet to be released. Mm-hmm. And um, But that was, an, that was like graduate screenwriting school for me. So anyway, my, my point is, by the time I got back, by the time I left Pixar and said I want to do television again, which was A to Z, I had accrued what I think... Is, would be the normal experience on a television show. Um, I, I felt confident as a writer. I felt confident as a leader. And I'd watched a lot of television in hotel rooms up there, and I was going <laughs> to do it again. So. Well, that's, it's interesting to me. I mean, the stuff you were doing, you kind of put together this experience piecemeal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you must have learned a ton from Tim on Drive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's... he's an unbelievable pro and like he, that guy knows how to put together a TV show yeah and I got to see a guy uh, dealing with a lot of difficulties on that mm-hmm. show I mean not just the budget but creatively like 
You know, I learned a big lesson on that, which is like you need a, you know, a roadmap uh, in order to you need to know where you're going. That's when serialized, like Lost style, uh, hero style writing was just hitting everywhere, mm-hmm. and we kind of knew where we were going with it, but it was like we didn't have a strong sort of franchise hook for that show, and it was it was like really difficult mm-hmm. figuring out what that show was from week to week. Um, and he's a genre writer, though, mm-hmm. and so he he came at it from with a, a different sensibility. And it was really just it was just interesting to watch him work and how mm-hmm. he how he operated in the room and how he operated out of it. Um, so yeah, it, did it was you? Great. I mean, oftentimes when these younger or newer show creators are teamed with an established showrunner, there's good friction and bad friction. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you feel like it was still your show once he and the rest of the writers came on board? No, I definitely mm-hmm. felt like it was our show, and, and maybe to more of an extent, even his show at a certain point, because I just—it was so expensive and so huge, and I had <laughs> zero experience that I really had to—he had to, you know, basically do it at a certain point. Um, but also, when I went to do A to Z, it also made me realize like there needs to be one creative vision. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, that, that was going to be my question. I mean, how do you how do you rectify that? How do you make that? your show and I would ask you guys this as well I mean you're working with strong voiced show creators how how are they asserting their vision uh, in the room on a day to day basis um, they're really decisive I'm, that's I, you hope that you get somebody who's decisive by mm-hmm. the way and knows exactly what their taste is and when they hear something if they do or don't like it um, and uh <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, always going in and kind of having a, a picture of where you want to end up at the end of that 13 or 22 episodes, mm-hmm. and then just always knowing what direction the characters are moving in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, having a story engine certainly helps. We have a procedural element in this particular Lucky. show. That's <laughs> You say that, um, but then you feel... Uh, I think shackled by it, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, you're like, oh, we gotta go do that thing again. Oh, I don't really want to do that. I just want to tell all these B and C stories. Sure. Um, but yeah, for us, we have no story engine. So mm-hmm. our story engine is survive. Wow. Uh, That's so, so cool to me. I don't, oh God. Let's switch. <laughs> Seriously, it's uh, it would be so nice to have you know Case walk in the door in, in some ways. But uh, for for me, in terms of how you get your vision and how you affect things, it's more what other people aren't focusing on or not focusing on, meaning um, like our showrunner is very much a, an action guy, so mm-hmm. like, what's the plot? What's happening? Mm. Tell me, you know, what's the big moment? What explodes? That sort of thing. And, explodes. <laughs> uh, and so I am much more of a character person. So, See? yeah, right? So I will, you know, I will do little twists on, hey, maybe we do a runner with this character, or maybe these two people would be interesting together. Let's I, have a quiet moment here. Yes, or, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So that and that can be helpful because it's not that the showrunner dislikes that he does he likes them. Mm-hmm. It's just that's not his first go to. Sure. So you can be complimentary in that way. That's great. Yeah. Uh, and and on the flip side, uh, Ben, you know when you are a showrunner, how many how big a staff did you have on A to Z? I think there were ten of us total. Oh wow, so that's a good sized staff for what thirteen episodes? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? There's nine of us. <laughs> okay. I'm not good. I don't. I never really counted. <laughs> We were very, I mean, I, when I hired the writers, I said, you know, I, I want it to be a collaborative uh, mm-hmm. situation. I want everyone to feel like it's our show, not mine. Um, and I took that from Pixar. I mean, it's very collaborative up there. Mm-hmm. And I hope that the staff, I mean, you'd have to talk to them. I hope they felt that way because 
I mean, I know my strengths, and I feel like I'm getting to know my strengths and weaknesses, and um, everything was always open for discussion. We didn't do a story unless everyone loved it, you know, and, oh, and yeah. we, didn't, we didn't move forward on big story points unless we really felt like there was a consensus, with a few rare exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I mean, I learned a lot just in terms of, like, I really learned to be more gracious, to really be more thankful for the people there, to listen more. And um, you're talking about being writer's assistants, assistants like our writer's assistant, uh, Gus Hickey, who was awesome. I mean, he would he was a really smart, amazing guy who would speak up and have fantastic ideas. Mm. And he also just sat there all the time, all the time just like yeah. typing in everything we said, which was amazing. Really helpful. <laughs> to think and do that at the same time. It's right. very difficult. Yeah. yeah. I wish the show could keep going so that we could give him a shot, but mm. I'm bummed that it didn't work out. Um, but tell me a little bit, if you would, about how you balance that, you know, collaboration, which everybody wants on a show, I think. Like, we, we get into TV because we like working with other people, yeah. and we like TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we didn't, we'd go off and write features and be weirdo loners. <laughs> um, so how do you balance that collaboration and the want for collaboration with having your own voice for the show or making sure yours is the guiding voice for the show? Well, at the end of the day, I, I just know what I want to see and I know what mm-hmm. I don't want to see. And to me, it, it's all about, I learned that it's all about being present, too. Always being as present as you can be with the writers and, and in the script. So if something's not right, you can go, no, I just don't want to do that. Or, um, or sometimes you have to take the script and go away and, like, try a few things. But in half-hour comedy writing, what I learned, which is, is that at a certain point you just fall behind and you're all just sitting in a room writing it together. And so the, it doesn't get any more collaborative than that. Mm. And you know, so there's one person sitting at the computer, it's usually me, and, and or we'll break the room up into two rooms, and it's just like, what's the best joke? What's the next thing? I mean, it's super fun. If, if, if you've never done comedy writing, I'd never been in a half-hour writing. Just rewriting show. it together or actually starting from scratch? Oh, no. Towards the end, it was like we would get a, a wow. big story together, and then we would just break up the room. You do these scenes, and you do these scenes, and then we okay. would swap and rewrite. And it was, uh, I had a ball doing that. I never experienced It's surprising that. to hear, though, because, like, you hear that with shows like The Simpsons, which are real joke-driven, mm-hmm. where A to Z was not joke-driven. I mean, no. it was... It's a very funny show, uh, but it wasn't. It's it was really about the characters. Yeah. Uh, so I'm surprised to hear that you guys well, came there, to that. There was there was always a, lo- a long period of time leading up to that where we were working the story, mm-hmm. and I always had the a last touch on it, which was always mm-hmm. great too. I mean, my my big takeaway from Pixar when I was there because I worked with John Lasseter pretty closely, is he would say, "Take the time, do the hard work in the first act to make sure your audience cares about your characters, and if you do that, they'll follow them anywhere." Mm-hmm. And we really right. tried to be rigorous every week to make sure there was an emotional buy-in to the stories. I mean, that's what we hoped would have set this, the, the show apart from others. Mm-hmm. And I hope it did for the few people that, that watched it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. I, I definitely think it did. I mean, it, it had a great feel like you hadn't seen on TV in a while, or certainly you hadn't seen in comedies in a while, like that Mad About You used to have, mm-hmm. you know, this sweetness underneath. Um, I want to talk about how your shows are broken because um, it is an interesting process, and every every show does it differently. Uh, let's talk about iZombie. Uh, we've talked to Rob a little bit about some other stuff that he worked on mm-hmm. and how he broke it, but every show is its own animal, too. Uh, how is the show broken in the room? Um, or is it broken in the room? Well, first we just started... Uh, God, the first week or so, week or two, we did the usual. I've done this on a couple shows where you talk about the character arcs. What do we want to do with this character this season? And you go down the list. Um, 
and then I'd say every episode in this one in particular because it's a zombie who eats brains and um, it's you know that's those are the cases uh, a body comes into the morgue she eats the brain and then uses the brain to help solve how that person was killed through um, she takes <laughs> on the traits of the brain sometimes you know I think the pilot she's a kleptomaniac so they do this fun quiet thing where she's just swiping things off of people's desks and you get it eventually and um, cool. and will sometimes take on their personality traits so that is a lot of fun it's it's procedural element and that's the fun part of it um but she does have to solve the case so you we usually enter into an episode with a cool brain um we usually try to come we've been coming up with lots of we were all asked to try to come up with a stories cool brains or situations um and so you go in with a brain you know you like and uh, and then figure out how that person died, what's a new interesting way we can discover a body or how were they murdered and how would that kind of character be murdered uh, or why. And then, of course, just looking back at where we left our B, C, D stories, then you continue those throughout. But we always start with our A story first and uh, then lay in the B, C later. Or if Rob has to step out of the room, we pause the A story and the B, C beats are just easier for us to drop in ourselves. You know, when um, it's the number three down, you know, Diane and Robert often off doing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, a thing that the the babies in the room can do is like figure out where those things go and whether they're good for act outs. And then, you know, they come back in and we figure out the A story. And then uh, once we have the beats laid in, we do a massage pass. Um, what is that? Rob will come in and before the writer has to go off to outline. Usually uh, when we just get the beats laid in, we write a story area. Um, so it's like a one-page mm-hmm. thing describing, yeah, in case Which I think is, do you guys do that? We do that I as think well. that's like is it Warner a Brothers, Harper, of course. Yeah, I don't too. know that we did it before, on, I, but I don't remember doing it on the event, but um, or the writers doing it. But we do the story area, and then by the before we go to outline, we do the massage pass, which is Rob comes in, and we go beat by beat mm-hmm. through the episode, figuring out some funny things that might be in this scene. Where is the scene going? You know, who's in this scene, who the scene belongs to. Uh, and even transitions sometimes, too. Um, and uh, then when the massage passes, that person's off doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And what was the turnaround for a script? I think the way we were... We were given... A week for outline, and that includes weekends. So if mm-hmm. it would, if you're, if you went Wednesday, it doesn't go Wednesday to Wednesday. Right. It goes seven days from or five days from Wednesday, I think. And then we give two weeks for a script. Well, that's a long time. Yeah, long it time. is actually because Rob, for younger writers especially, would ask us to do these like twenty-something page outlines. He wanted to know every move we were going to wow. make wow. in the outline. So you essentially wrote the script by the end yeah. of of your outline, and he could give you notes. You rewrote it, then you write a smaller. I hope I'm not like giving away some secret. <laughs> and then you you take that and break it down to fourteen pages for the studio, hmm. so they won't murder you. Right. <laughs> um, and. Uh, but it, it was fantastic. That first script, I was like, man, I, I already did. I'm just, just I'm actually going to go to Pilates today. <laughs> and then I like, because I pretty much wrote this. Um, 
oh shit, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is, when you get to that, I mean, you yeah. can write the script in two days. You That first week when you're doing the outline, you're like, oh my god, right. <laughs> I'm crying in the shower. But those two weeks are really smooth after that. Interesting. Uh, what about you, Kim? How so, does it work on The 100? On The 100, yes. It is It is quite different because we are so serialized. Mm-hmm. You know, we it's week after week we pick up right at, you know, after what happened last week. And a lot of times we have very big moves that happen at the end of episodes. So we're dealing with fallout in terms of, okay, what, what happened last week? How does that spin our characters off in interesting ways? For us, we don't have a dedicated A story. So, like, your case is the A story. Mm-hmm. We don't yeah. have that. From episode to episode, even our lead is not necessarily the A story. In mine that I just turned into, she's the B story, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a matter of what's the choice that these people are going to face. We really like that on our show, like, give us moral choices. Mm -hmm. What are the things that you would have to do to survive that maybe aren't so palatable? And, you know, how can we push the envelope a little bit in terms of what we're choosing to do? So one of my favorite episodes, really, when we found the show in season one was episode four, and we called up the network and was like, is it cool if we hang a kid? And the network was like, By go kid, for you it. Mean like, like a kid? 17 year olds, okay. you know, <laughs> is it cool if we have like a 12 year old girl murder someone? Is that cool with you guys? And they were, to, I mean, to their credit, they were totally supportive. Mm-hmm. They let us do whatever we wanted. And so. They let us say prick. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can say that either. But we can hang a kid, so. Sure. Yeah, so we just have to figure out, you know, where are we in the story? What what are we doing in terms of the emotional arc, especially of the lead? Where is she going? And from there, we build out. So what is the moral choice? You know, what does this person have to get accomplished in this episode? And oftentimes, you know, they're, they're big, drastic moves that, um, that we're trying to... We're trying to figure out a way to do them in a way we can get away with, frankly. Mm-hmm. So that's been fun. And it's great fun because we do a lot of stuff you can't do on a lot of shows, which is part of what mm-hmm. makes the show awesome. You, and it's, I mean, you mentioned finding the show in that first season. Yeah. And I'm curious to hear about this from all of you, really. I mean, what, what did you see or what did you learn as you moved through these first 13 episodes? You know, if if A to Z had another season, what would that look like from a, a production standpoint, from a writing standpoint? In my head, I was like, well, the show is the show. But now thinking back on it, I'm like, well, you know, we did try and, and make it. We did try and add a few more jokes than I probably would have added were hmm. we on, say, a cable mm. outlet or whatever. Um, so that, I, I think if I had more episodes, I would lean into, the, frankly, the big romance of it a little more, mm-hmm. um, the romantic comedy aspect of it, and less about the sitcom joke mm-hmm. stuff. Um, that would be my big That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. What about like the way the show is put together? What about the way stories are broken or the room is run? I mean, I wouldn't you change you started that at all. falling behind by... Well, just a little bit. I mean, I, I wouldn't... We always knew what our stories were, and mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change that, which is that we tried to... We came in the first day lo- loaded with... Uh, relatable relationship stories that that we also felt were unique that other people had not experienced in this specific way. That whole idea that like specificity is the enemy of cliche. Like we could tell a story about like dealing with something in a relationship too soon, but what makes it specific to this couple? Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't change that. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, and and Kim, having been there from the beginning on the hundred. How did you see, but but also a little bit outside, which gives you a really interesting perspective on mm-hmm. it, you know, not being a writer, but the writer's assistant. How did you see the staff and the showrunner figure out what the show was? It was actually- 
actually amazing because it was a very long process. I mean, I think really? we broke episode four for like a month. It was, I mean, we got actually felt very behind during that process. But um, it was just, it was just this issue of finding the okay, we're going to make the difficult choice. That was really the thing that we figured out was going to was the key to our show. Um, and and it, it didn't start out that way. It started out as you know fun adventure story with kids on the ground. How do they survive? And then we realized, well, to survive, you're going to have to make some tough choices. So um, it was just a matter of, you know, can we do this thing? Will the network let us? Will they embrace it? Which they completely did, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then it was, how do we make our characters watchable at the same time as having them do horrible things to each other, right? Which is, I mean, it's broadcast, so you always want the, the likable characters. And so when you're sure. accusing someone of murder falsely, um, is that likable? You know, <laughs> and so how do you figure that out? So it was... So how did you guys figure that out? How did you approach that? You know, it was it was just leaning into the perspective and making mm -hmm. sure that everyone had a good reason for what they were doing. Right. I mean, I think we spent a week talking about the knife that our lead found and how that would be the clue that would lead her to accuse the guy that didn't actually do it, and so how she had to know that it was certain character's knife, otherwise she wouldn't be able to, you know, mm -hmm. and for any of the plot to happen. So it was just, yeah, it was just leaning into that that POV and just making sure that they their choices made sense from their perspective, which is hard because we have a cast of twelve yeah. plus recurring. So it's it's insane the number of characters we're dealing with, but focusing on that was was very helpful for mm -hmm. them, I think. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask all of you guys about tone. Uh, starting with you, Deirdre, because Rob has a certain tone to, I think, specific. a lot of the stuff he's worked on. Yeah. Um, so how do you, as a staff writer, try to emulate that? Or, or do you? It's hard. It's, that's been really fucking hard. <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's really tough because... Yeah. Um, I mean, it feels like that would be the big concern in your draft it's, it's, because the plot is taken the, care of. It, yeah, exactly. It's the main concern. You're like, is this a moment? She just ate a person's brain, <laughs> or it's death. It's always death. And um, and when is like the episode that I wrote? Um, it's you know someone she knows, and and mm -hmm. and um, so you're trying to balance that. This show is funny. These are funny characters, but also they're going through very real um, depressing shit. So um, how do you not just be a bummer? And Diane Ruggiero actually uh, had a very good... She just wanted... She's like, don't come in asking yourself what's funny about this scene. Mm -hmm. Don't go there first. Start with pathos, and then find what's funny in that. And um, there's this this example she always gave from uh, an episode of Veronica Mars. I think it was called "The Rapes of Graph." I remember that. Episode. Um, I remember that too. Uh, she there's a moment where uh, Veronica she's got that song stuck in her head after her uh, I think college roommate is is raped. Um, and there's a song she has stuck in her head, and it's it's uh, there has to be a morning after, you know, and and she's just like you know there's and that's the way real people deal with tragedy mm -hmm. and and shitty situations too is to make light of it, and that's where we're always going for uh, what we're always going for is digging into what a person would really the situation you'd really be in and those feelings and lean into those, but you know find a way to kind of crack wise too. Mm -hmm. um, but the jokes aren't supposed to be the most important thing. So 
my scripts tend to lean towards more depressing but somewhat witty, and then <laughs> Diane takes them and makes them like fucking hilarious. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you can deliver that, if you can deliver the real emotion, then mm-hmm. you're pretty solid mm-hmm. for the most part. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, that feels like that had to have been the case on A to Z as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I said I think the first day I didn't really want anything to feel like it was a joke. Mm-hmm. Like we had a really a lot of really funny writers on the staff, and mm-hmm. a lot of them could tell great jokes, but a few of them had, I think, to fight that <laughs> as sure. we went on. Um, and Did you I, hire all comedy writers, all half-hour comedy writers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted it to feel like an NBC network show at the sure. end of the day. I wanted it to see, succeed as that, um, but I was perfectly happy to go pages and pages with no jokes. I still am. I mean, in, in some of our l- later episodes, I mean, there's there's whole acts without really a lot of jokes in it, um, but that's okay. I, I I'm okay with that. I like watching that. So. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, I feel like the audience is starting to learn how to watch that. You know, it's yeah. it's not the people who are watching Big Bang Theory. Yeah. You know, they they can have all the jokes they want, right? So yeah. my parents aren't going to watch A to Z. Yeah, and by the way, <laughs> anybody who just goes like this with their I'm for the radio for the, uh, podcast listeners, I'm moving my thumb like a like an old style remote. Um, we'll just see a show like Enlightened or Breaking Bad, where it's it's like completely interchangeable yeah. the genre. But for some reason on network, they have these rules that you have to have it be a certain way, and, and I think they're changing those a little bit. It feels like it. Yeah, it does feel. Like, I mean, the fact that you guys are working on hour-long shows that have a good deal of comedy or a yep. good deal of action yeah. and some very dark action. Very well, dark with, with, you, know? with uh, you guys' shows, I mean, like, genre shows seem to straddle that in a really great way. Mm-hmm. You can have great humor and suspense and drama on those genre shows, which is, I think, why they're the most fun to write, right? Yeah. Am I, am I wrong? Lots of fun. Yeah. <laughs> I wish there were more jokes in my show, but yes, I try. I, it's I, dark. I put about 50% more jokes than I want in there because I know that they will get cut. <laughs> so, But I actually end up with, on the average, more jokes nice. than most episodes, so it works out. And probably more, <laughs> right. likely more jokes than a half-hour sitcom also. Um, left to your own devices, I will ask this to each of you, left to your own devices, um, what is the kind of show that you would make? And considering that, how do you make yourself care about the show that you are currently making? Sure, point to me. <laughs> um, I just the kind of show that I would make. You know, really interesting things are happening right now. With I don't know if you guys have been watching Transparent, um, mm-hmm. but that Amazon. I don't know what's happening right now, but it's kind of amazing because I feel like Transparent would not have made it a few years ago, even. That it almost reads like a play or an indie movie to me, and you have no idea what's going to happen next week. I mean, that would—that's like a starting from scratch every episode. It must be. Um, but I, you know, my most recent pilot script was my agent when I pitched it to him. He was really nervous and said lots of things to me that made me really nervous, which was, <laughs> you know, you really got to nail this one, or it's, or it's because it was a small idea. And that's my problem. I always go very small. And, mm. and uh, when I handed it in, he was like, 
So, yeah, this is why I was nervous about this script. It reads like an indie movie. You can't just have people talking to each other. So that's the shit that I would make. It's pretty much just people talking to you. But you know what? I sent that script out. I got so many meetings sure. off of it because it read like an indie movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and more of that stuff is happening where it's just about characters. And, of course, there's a world. There's a thing that brings those people together. Um, but, you know, it doesn't have an engine. Even, like, Six Feet Under is very clever in that. There was always uh, always right. a body that came in, also a family. Um, but you got to tell those just people-to-people stories. Um, I can't even manage to find the funeral home is my <laughs> issue. Um, but do you think, and, and I'll, I'll come back to the, the original question, but, you know, you guys are all in, in this world now. You've seen how television works. Mm. Um are the and my agent has said a similar thing to like what's what's the engine blah 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 are we past that? Is it that our agents are living They're five, always six, like a day behind. <laughs> like, and by a day, I mean like five years. Yeah. Um, they always have that that information that you know immediately as soon as they say it to you. You're like, come on. Um, you know when they say something, they always like say something. I mean, my agents are actually wonderful, but you hear this from other people too. Uh, Nobody wants to see a period piece. And then suddenly that ship blows sure. up. And it's, I think it's really just writing a thing that's somehow personal to you, whether mm-hmm. it's just emotionally, even if it's you're writing Star Wars. Something that I, somebody just said to me recently is, if you write from the heart, it goes to the heart. Mm-hmm. And if you just find that thing, people are going to respond, whether it's a period piece or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I don't remember what the fuck I was talking about. I think anyway. in some ways that, especially with agents saying that sort of thing, I mean, they're responding to the market, right? Mm-hmm. They, It's their job to sell you. It's their job to sell shows. And so when they go to, like, studio or network, they ask, what, what's the story engine? Because, of course, that's yeah. what studio and mm-hmm. most traditional studios mm-hmm. and networks do. So, I, I mean, I understand that perspective. Um, I also think that it doesn't really matter as long as you're entertaining. Mm-hmm. I think that's the most important thing. You have to be entertaining. And a lot of these shows, a lot of very standard broadcast shows that I see come out every fall... They have the engine, they have all the bits and pieces, but they're just not, they don't cohere into mm-hmm. something greater. They don't get you here. Yeah. And so, soul. I mean, a story They have all the pieces, great. but mm-hmm. yeah, they're missing the key piece. Exactly. But you need to have the heart to it. And so mm-hmm. I think, I mean, but so how do you quantify heart? Mm-hmm. You know? So that's part of the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is A to Z the Left Your Own Devices the show that you would make? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, but I have a hundred of those. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'll tell you the turning point for me in terms of writing pilots and then getting them made and on the air, because the last two pilots I've written have gone to series, were when I really sat down and were, and were honest with myself about, like, do I really, really deep down believe that people want to see this? You know? Like, that they're not just me, but that there are other people out there that, that would want to see that. And I pushed a couple ideas aside that I was really interested in writing. And I'm having that situation now where it's like, if I'm going to go develop again, what of the, which of these ideas that I want to do are going to be the ones that I believe in? Because people can feel that at network, and they can For feel sure. it at the studio. They can feel the passion and the belief in it, and they'll buy into that mm-hmm. and say, give, let's give him a chance. Because if he believes it and we believe it, then maybe, maybe there's other people out there that will believe it. And that just is like an amazing I've a piece of energy that just flows through the cast and the crew, mm-hmm. and it gives everybody a sense of positivity, and, and it makes for a really great work environment, too, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, we had a wrap party on Friday night for the show after production, and it was so much fun. Everyone had a great time, even though we were all unemployed. <laughs> right. yeah. you, so, well, you feel like you made something good. I yeah, mean, and we all believed in it. Product. And yeah. we all believed in it. I mean, um, 
But yeah, it's 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 a great time to be creating TV right now. Like you say, with Transparent and all these shows. Yeah. Like, if you have an idea, chances are there's a network for it out mm-hmm. there, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about the stuff that you passed over? The stuff that you said these aren't the ones that people want to see uh-huh. right now or this isn't the right story to tell what was it about those well I have a, a little process which I do <laughs> whereas I'll, I'll talk, talk to my wife about the ideas and see what she likes I'll go into my agent's office at the beginning of every season and pitch them 15 ideas <laughs> and say what do you think and they'll pick one or two mm-hmm. and I don't just do those but usually I'm happy with doing those mm-hmm. you know I, I went in and I go A to Z relationship from beginning to end they're like do that one and that was real easy because that was the one I really wanted to do. Uh, it's all about volume for me. Um, so, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, same question for you guys. When you're writing on your own, I mean, this pilot that you did, um, when you can find time to write on your own, how do you decide what story to chase? This is a question that comes up a lot on these, and yeah. I don't want to answer it. <laughs> I generally chase characters, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really, the, the pilots I like to write are um, kind of things that are not on television right now. I like to write things that I don't see, that I can't watch. Um, sure. I like sci-fi stuff, so it's great working on the show that I'm on, but I also, I mean, I defy genre. Like, it doesn't matter to me what the story's about. It's just who's in that story, and mm-hmm. so I want to see, you know, what are their dilemmas. I like really intelligent characters who get to talk a lot, quite frankly, and I know that's probably annoying to some oh, people. that's why you could talk about Western for an hour. Exactly, right? So um, I feel like that's the last time we got to see that. Yeah, was exactly. the smartest people in the room exactly. just talking, and I it was that. fascinating. Yeah, and, and you cared about them, and you yeah. were interested, and you wanted to be as smart as these people, and you wished that the, these smart people were in charge as opposed to the ones who are. Um, but yeah, so so I'm always I'm always kind of hewing toward that, and, and so within that, anything can happen, right? Because mm-hmm. as long as you have characters that you're interested in, it doesn't matter what the story is. Sure. True. To but, me. But to other people. How do you start to build your world? How do you start to find the things that you that are also interesting to you? Right, yeah. And that really goes to what is not on television right now. Mm-hmm. For example, what is on, not on TV right now? A grand big space opera. Mm-hmm. Like, the last one was Battlestar. I mean, they've maybe made attempts at development, but nothing. I mean, maybe sci-fi is coming out with some soon, but that's not on mm-hmm. there. So I think it's a great way to look at it, too. Mm-hmm. I, I did that with A to Z. It was like... My wife and I couldn't go see romantic comedies in the theater because they stopped making them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, let's try that. And, I, mm-hmm. and that it doesn't, did not surprise me when quite a few of them showed up this season, <laughs> you know, because I think other people were yeah. feeling that yeah. need for something. It's and a it's, there's a way to look at that cynically and say I'm exploiting a hole in the marketplace. But no, but it's not, also, if, not if you're looking at it from the way right. she is, which is what do I want to see? Yes. And let me let me put that on. Yeah, I, I agree Absolutely. with you totally. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it always has to be gut-based like that and to some degree, whether you're, you're like, I miss seeing this thing or, um, you know characters uh mine's definitely gut based in the sense that i find myself usually obsessively thinking about a couple of things and it usually has something to do with what i'm going through at the time like i think when i like turned 30 i was having these i had like a best friend back home this is what my pilot ended up being about um this girl i grew up with we went on very different paths and she's like pretty much drunk every night, works at a bar, uh, like, drives, like, a Volkswagen Golf, like, also works at Build-A-Bear, drinks <laughs> with, like, the same people all the time, but she's 
fucking hilarious and amazing. And um, I was like, how do you not just want to kill yourself every day? I would kill myself if I had your life. But she's so, you know, she's kind of like a townie, but she doesn't feel like a civilian. She's like one of the most fascinating people I know. And I'm always trying to get her to move to L.A. I'm like, like I feel like I'm in the life raft and I'm like trying to help her. And then I'm like, you're such a dick to take that perspective. <laughs> so then I was trying to understand from her perspective why she loves her life so much. Because she is pretty happy most of the time. And so I did this weird thing where I went home and hung out with her and did some Molly with her and, and just, like, got into her life with her. And um, and that's what I ended up writing about is I'm, I realized when someone asked me, why do you want this write this story now? And it, was all, it turns out it was all about me turning 30 and having these insecurities of my own of what direction am I moving in with my career and do I even know a guy I would bother having children with at this point? And you have all that shit on your mind. And I was looking at her like, dude, you need to, wow, you're, you're not even moving in any direction. And so it was all about something that I was going through. I had no idea. I was looking at the symptom. And then when you work yourself backwards, so you write something that I, you know, I just write about shit that's bothering me, apparently. But did but. <laughs> you have any self-awareness when you were writing it, or would that have made it too difficult to write? No, I, I didn't have any self-awareness when I I was at the stage of being fascinated with her mm-hmm. and wanting to write something about her life, because it really, it's, there's this one street where that she hangs out on called um, Lark Street, and there's people like her hang out on this just and they're not quite like the other townies it's just really interesting it's its own ecosystem and um so i'm like i gotta write i but i'm not quite sure what's interesting Mm -hmm. about that and what's universal about it so when i became self-aware was when someone finally dropped that big question on me of like why why do you want to write about why are you writing about this and that for four days i was like i don't know and (laughs) i was spinning and and then by the fourth day, though, I did a lot of soul searching. It just hit me, and like I'm freaked out about turning thirty. That's what it is. And um, don't write the show about being freaked out about turning thirty. That's boring. But put it in there in a latent sense, <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's more interesting. Sure. So yeah, it's usually it's just usually something that I'm going through somehow, or I get fascinated by a genre or a topic, or I'll read a book, and and then I always do that now. Though the homework of working backwards and asking myself. What is it about right now? Why does this fascinate me right now? And why am I so interested? Mm-hmm. And when you have that answer, I think it's helpful. Mm-hmm. We've talked on these panels a bit about, and you brought it up earlier, I mean, when you write from the heart, it, it touches the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's very difficult to do. You know, how, how do you guys put yourself into that space to be honest on the page or to explore your self or your emotions on the page? Yeah, it's hard. you're going to cry. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard. Specificity yeah. is actually, I think, it's not as hard anymore. It, you just lean into it because you realize that makes the best material. Um, when, yeah, you write this character who's totally your ex-boyfriend, but everything that he does seems interesting. To, it, like, that's an interesting character because it's so specific. Or, you know, a situation that happened to you. Like, I made a joke the other <laughs> I made a joke the other day where um, this character's kind of reading another one, the riot act, about a relationship that she's in. And she's like, let me guess. You guys never spend any time together during the day. He doesn't like to cuddle. Sometimes you find a cup 
you know, on your side of the bed that, you know, has lipstick marks on it, or it's a cup that you haven't used, or you open up the medicine cabinet and there's frizzies in there for the curly hair you don't have. I'm like, that all happened to me. And it's like, because it's like specific, and it was written better than I said it, it was funny, because it's like the frizzies and the, yeah, you open his medicine cabinet and there's hair products in there you didn't use. That's... It's therapeutic, and you can just laugh about it now. That's one awesome thing about being a writer is that shitty things can happen to you, and you know what? You get to turn around and tell that story and, and make it your own, and it's funny. Sure. Um, ben, you are married, and you have just <laughs> written on. Yeah, okay. a, a romantic comedy. Yeah. Um, how do you write about a relationship without exploiting your relationship? Uh, you exploit it. You, you, there's no avoiding it. I mean, the pilot story happened to my wife and I, and that was part of really? the, the pitch of the show, is that we met each other and fell in love, and we were hanging out one night, and we realized we'd both been at the same concert together years earlier. And I, at that moment, remembered that I remember being at that show. I went with somebody who I did not want to be there with, mm-hmm. and I remember being in the lobby and looking across and seeing this girl and thinking, I wish I were here with her, and sort of putting all my desires and my feelings about life onto this girl and when I realized that I said to my wife that had to have been you and her take on it was yeah maybe you know (laughs) which is exactly the sort of difference with the way we look at those things Mm -hmm. and I took that sort of Scene and sort of extrapolated very extreme versions of those characters to build the story around. That's how Andrew and Zelda became. So, and there there are certain stories in the show that are things that happened to us, but mostly it's like because that base was there, because it came Mm. from that one place. I always felt like there was a touchstone to us, Mm -hmm. Um, and so that was important. And then it became all about fictionalizing and just getting the best stories out Mm -hmm. of it. Um, because and we we would laugh about it on the staff of like people that that would that would sit not people on our staff people they worked with who were like uh, but this really happened to me that's that's why the scene is good and it's like no the scene's not good just because it happened yeah. Yeah. it's like how do you pervert it to get it just to that right mm-hmm. place which is um, the fun of it I think mm-hmm. you know finding that balance that it feels true mm-hmm. and but it's not boring <laughs> you know so. Uh, and it sounds like, though these characters did come from you and your wife, though they were based yeah. on you, you didn't have a lot of trouble sharing them. No, not at all. Well, there's things I wouldn't share, but uh, yeah, if it's, I don't know. No, not at all. But I mean, letting others have a hand in, in you oh, know, oh, sharing them controlling with the rest of the staff. I had no choice. I mean, you run out of stories so quickly, you know. <laughs> For and, sure. And I, I hired people who were, and I, it was part of the hiring process. I said, and, I, and you guys are. I, w- I figured it would be a big deal to ask writers this, like, are you willing to talk about your personal life? You know, it <laughs> oh my God, turns that's out. all you yeah, do. Exactly. You tell each other the most just, wow, personal stuff I know. really fast. I know, and, I, and that, that's what was great, is, like, everyone was really w- willing to open mm-hmm. up and use their own life experience, which was, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, let me get back to some nuts and bolts stuff. Um, what are you guys have both been or have all been in a couple of different rooms? What are mistakes that writers, new or old, make in a writer's room? Having your head up your ass. <laughs> I explain. Um, well, I just remember a few shows ago, um, a staff writer. The whole room was just working really hard at this one story point or story. They were having a hard time. And this staff writer used to just kind of doodle and not pitch much. And at some point, she looks up and she's like, I don't know. I don't really like it. I'm like a fan of genre, and I just don't like this. As a fan, I just wouldn't like this. 
That's all she said. Um, instead of not helpful. No. First of all, you need to find a different way to say that. Never say that's stupid or I don't think because it came out of someone's brain in this room. And you know, don't be a dick. Um, but also, as much as you can, sometimes it's easier to see the problem than it is sure. the solution. Obviously, but you should really try and mm-hmm. at the very least say. I don't have the solution yet, but here's where I see we might run into some issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet, yeah, don't be that guy. Don't be the person who's always tearing down, and mm-hmm. without good reason, um, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, I mean, it's un- kind of unfair for me to give this perspective, because I was on the other end of it. <laughs> but I would say writers that don't talk. Mm-hmm. That drove, drives me a little crazy, like especially because like I know you're all really smart. Like say something, um, and people. What do you think is is going on when you have a writer who's not talking? I think it's. I think a lot of writers are genuine introverts and they're shy. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, there was one writer I talked to, a uh, very very smart writer, and it's just shy. You know, I would hire this person again, mm-hmm. but um, you know what I mean. And then the other thing is like maybe pushing too hard, feeling like you're not heard. Mm-hmm. I, I I heard everything the first time, and you don't need to say it ten <laughs> times, you know. Um, and then from my end, I did that a lot when I was at Pixar, right, mm-hmm. to the point where I was like, okay, they hear you, you know. Like just because you believe in it doesn't mean everyone else does. Mm-hmm. So I've seen it from both perspectives. It's interesting. I've seen I've seen some writers make mistakes in terms of getting bogged down in the details, mm-hmm. which is interesting because details are important, of course. But um, for example, in our room, we have the R word, which is radio, because the logistics of radios in our show it's just like the thing that will kill your story. But if you, so if you so if you get if you get to right. de- who can listen on the radio, which radio are we talking about, like all of that. So it's like no, what is the story? Let's take a step back, and that's really. A valuable thing I learned from kind of the upper level people in the room who would say, okay, setting the radio aside, what is the best dynamic? You know, what's interesting about this story aside from that? And then let's see if we can work backwards. Mm-hmm. But if you get too focused on little teeny tiny things and you can't see the story anymore, and then it's just not helpful. To that point, I bet I'm like moving a few steps over. You have to realize that you're there to give the showrunner, the, you're there to write the showrunner's show. Mm-hmm. You're not an unappreciated genius that's not this isn't about you right now someday it might be and great but you know you're there to so it reminded me because sometimes when there's a room will sometimes go off the rails when a showrunner walks out of the room because it's like well I don't like that idea well too bad that's what the showrunner wants us to accomplish if he wants us to get around the radio issue if he's cool with the radio issue we're cool with the radio issue so now we need to move forward and a lot of people you know we're all narcissistic we're you know we have a hard time realizing that we have to serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's similar thing to what has happened in our room as well. And um, it's interesting because it's really about the showrunner. Like the show is about the showrunner. It's not even it's not even about the show so much as the showrunner. Mm-hmm. So you can have an idea that you think is awesome and perfect for the show and totally on, but if the showrunner disagrees, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. Yeah, save so it for when you get your own show. You're wasting your yeah, time. Yeah. If you keep pushing and yeah. Yeah. Um, similar question, mistakes that writers make on the page and how to avoid them. Well, I mean, just having gone through it again, I would say, and, now, do you want it from my perspective, like yeah. what, what mistakes <laughs> I've made or do you think no, mistakes? Either way. <laughs> <laughs> Either as a showrunner or as a writer, as a staff writer. Um, I think maybe not, um, not trying 
put your own stamp on it, mm-hmm. I think is really important. Like, show me your voice. Like, I hired you for your voice. Mm-hmm. Show me that. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, try and write in my voice, but also feel comfortable enough to create. You know, um, I want to see stuff on the page that we didn't talk about in the room. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just me personally. I know yeah. a lot of showrunners would not want that. <laughs> um, Rob's definitely like that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, like, if something feels alive and it's still not working, that's okay, you know, mm-hmm. but because we can figure it out. There's that, and then there's also just, like, taking forever to turn a draft in. I mean, it just, like, just turn it in. Is a work in progress, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm always rewriting my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was it for me. I, I, had a, I, got, I was really lucky. I had really good writers on my mm-hmm. staff, so mm-hmm. um, I, there weren't a lot of mistakes, you know? What have you guys seen or done or advice that you've taken to avoid, you know, mistakes on the page? Because obviously you guys have not made mistakes. No, not many. <laughs> all the mistakes, all of them. One, one problem I have with my scripts, I think, sometimes is that they're a really great read. Um, hmm. Sometimes I'm very good. And that's something I worked really hard at doing. I used to be, I a couple times I've... Uh, I've worked doing notes, uh, script notes or mm-hmm. whatever, coverage. Uh, and I'm like, God, you know, this is so fucking terrible. I really want to write. I'd like Frank Darabont, for instance, makes the most readable script. Shane Black, too. Mm-hmm. You're like laughing at the action description as much as you're, um, as you're laughing at some of the dialogue. And uh, so that's really important to me personally. I think you can kind of pull the wool over people's eyes when you're sending out a script. But, of course, when it actually comes to shooting it, um, I, I, you have to be careful. You have to make sure it's going to translate. And, yeah. Um, but, yeah, really, vaguely, I'm not as far there as... Is, I mean, it's a good point. There is a big difference between writing a script to show other people mm-hmm. and writing a script to be produced. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a really good point. And it's, I mean, I'm learning it myself. It's a really hard process of, of knowing what to put in that script that makes it a shootable script. Yeah, and like from a half-hour perspective, this whole table read thing was new to me. I mean, granted, so we, great. we did table reads at Pixar, so I was getting used to those a sure. little bit. But like, the first draft you write is for the room. You know, the, the room of yeah. executives. And then you go off and you really make it a production draft. And there's a huge gulf between those. Hmm. Um, so, for instance, we would we would, we would would put jokes in that I knew would get a laugh at the table that I knew I didn't want in the, in the yeah. episode. Um, things like that. Yeah. You know. do, do we need to teach our executives how to read a draft to shoot? <laughs> I wish we could put I mean, them writing boot camp. Because there, there is something to that, right? There's a disconnect between what... They are expecting and what we need to deliver. Over clarification, always. They always want mm-hmm. clarification and, you know, to the just beating a dead horse, like, this is happening because of this exposition, exposition. Yeah. I mean, they definitely love resetting, but I have to give the biggest props to CW and Warner Brothers. Uh, they Their notes are amazing. Like, their notes are always right. He's actually been really, really great. Really and great. they read really fast. Yes. Too. So, I, I, I mean... I love, I love working with Warners, mm. and, and I will say, like, NBC, like, Vernon Sanders, for instance, is, like, an amazing executive who gives <laughs> fantastic notes. Mm-hmm. Who, their character-specific notes, which is all a writer wants. Um, but yeah, I, so you guys, I see, I've never worked with Warners before this season. I really had a great experience. They're wonderful. Yeah. Actually, yeah. yeah. They're really, they're very helpful. And so, and that's what's been so nice is that, 
you know, you're not getting this, the stupid executive notes mm-hmm. as, as, you know, we've all heard of those or gotten those. But um, but there, it's really focused on what, what will make the show better. And so I really appreciate that. I mean, they can be so helpful. Well, and it helps, too, when they're, like, into it, genuinely. I've certainly heard network notes where you can tell they are checked out. They could give a shit. It's like sometimes you don't get notes because they hate it, or sometimes you don't get very many notes because they love it, and you can definitely tell the difference. Uh, every one of those calls starts with, it was great, but what follows is what right. tells you how much that's bullshit or not. Um, a lot of great stuff here. Yeah, oh, you really wrote this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how much rewriting goes on on the series that you guys are currently working a on? Lot. We heard a lot from Ben. A lot. Yeah. From, from our show, yeah. Is it why, why do you suppose that is? Our show's very hard to write. Um, Jason has very exacting standards about what he likes in scripts, and um, it's it's an action adventure show. And a lot of um, I think a lot of writers approach it more from the character side, which as they should, we all should. But um, for him, he really needs the action to be right, and so a lot of times that will be his his kind of sticking point and then it's voice it's very you know we don't have a, lo- a ton of dialogue we don't have people giving speeches we don't have long exchanges it's it's really not that extensive so it has to be right what's there and sometimes it's hard to get especially if you're a new writer on a show you're coming in first the second season for example sure. you have to study those scripts to know what people are going to say and you know that's his voice pass that's you know his writer's mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense um, starting here with Ben what are you watching on television? What are you excited about? What is getting you inspired? What are you talking to your your spouse, your friends about? Oh my god, that's not fair because I've been in production. So I know. I've got to see a lot of everything. Pull something out of your eyes. Yeah, um, I like Key and Peele. I like. Um, I can't wait for Mad Men to come back. Um, I watch a lot of late night talk shows. I watch SNL. Um, I used to watch Enlightened when it was on. I love that show. Um, I wish more stuff uh, like that were on. I'm, I'm curious to, to know Mindy from you, Project I watch, mm-hmm. yeah. which is which is doing a similar sort of romantic comedy thing. Yeah. Uh, it, although it's so her voice. Yes. Um, are there romantic comedies that you love that you said I want this show to have that feel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nora Ephron movies, um, Love Actually. I mean, that was sort of the sweet spot of what we were going hmm. for. I love those movies, and they just don't make them anymore. They don't make big budget romantic comedies. I'm talking about ones that like they're sophisticated light comedies yeah. with like big. The kids call them today the feels that have feels in them you know um, you just don't find them it's no. such a bummer even I mean I feel like even when Harry Met Sally as love great that. a movie as it is I watched Broadcast News again recently oh my god I love that one yeah. which is like yeah. there, will, there will never be a movie like that again it's just too smart it's about smart people well, television, having I, emotions a television has stuff like that yeah. coming on and, That's and true. it's all about TV now with, with stories like that uh, what are you watching Deirdre what uh, are you excited brain, about these days my brain always freezes at this question, even though I know there's it's like when you used to walk into a video store, what are those? <laughs> um, and you forget everything you wanted to see. Uh, transparent for sure. Um, God, Louis, um, Game of Thrones, obviously, The Americans, um, yeah. Uh, anything on HBO, basically. Good answers. Anything on FX, also. Uh, yes. It sounds like. Actually, yeah. Yeah. Kim, what's going on? What are you putting in your eyes? Uh, 
I <laughs> I'm loving Homeland this season. Loving. Mm-hmm. They have completely reinvented themselves really? in an awesome way. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. So you should definitely check it out if you haven't right. been catching up. Uh, the Good Wife, still amazing on broadcast. How does this happen? <laughs> but it, they're doing amazing things. And then, you know, fun stuff like Sleepy Hollow, that sort of thing. No, I like Sleepy Hollow. Really looking forward to justifying coming back. Right. So excited. It's the best. Yeah, it's the best. It's the best thing we got. The Boyd versus Raylan, and I just <laughs> right? cannot wait. Uh, thank you guys so much for thank being you. here. I really thank appreciate you. it. This was lovely. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Nerdist.com.